badly. We need more federal aid to education and give us some relief from property taxes. We need more benefits for senior citizens and veterans, more help for mass transit and air and water pollution and housing. We need strict price controls on food and on rents which continue to skyrocket. These are some of the things I want to work for and some of the reasons I want the opportunity to represent the people of New Jersey's 7th Congressional District. Roosevelt Raceway tonight, daily double number three, off-track betting letter C, Camilla Lobel, number one, OTB letter A, Evelyn Hanover. The feature, number two, OTB letter B, first pigeon. Stock market continued on the upside today in active trading, New York exchange volume. 21,360,000 shares, the gainers outnumbering losers, 846 to 606, 360 unchanged. Dow Jones Industrials closed up 4.52. Transportation up 0.89, utilities up 0.44. Price of an average big board common share up 20 cents. American Exchange sales 4,484,000 shares. Losers outnumbering gainers 463 to 457, 303 unchanged. The Amex index up 0.02. The WOR weather watch update for New York City and vicinity. Cloudy and milder tonight. Chance of a few showers tonight and tomorrow morning. Lows tonight in the mid-50s, becoming partly cloudy tomorrow afternoon. Highs in the upper 60s. Clearing tomorrow night, lows around 50. Saturday fair and pleasant, the highs in the mid-60s. Current temperature 60 degrees, humidity 90%. Wind southwest 5 miles an hour. Barometer 29.87 inches and rising. Highlights in the news at this hour, President Nixon tells the nation that the United States will sign a Vietnam peace agreement only when the details are hammered out to assure that it will mean a lasting, not a temporary peace. Senator McGovern says President's speech indicates that peace really is not near. 500 Indians seize control of the Bureau of Indian Affairs building in Washington, D.C. in a protest demonstration. And that's the latest from the WOR Newsroom, Lester Smith reporting. Over WOR New York, your station for news as it happens. I'll be back with another 15 minutes of all the late news at 11 o'clock. And here's Gene Shepard. Magnificent piece of music there. Just get the machine going. Hold it there a minute now. I'll give you the cue there. Just hold it there, Ed. We'd like to salute a, an Englishman who rises above the muck and the mire of the ordinary walking around scratching Englishman. You know, uh, we don't. We the, the hands across the sea thing is very important. Of course, we realize we're in the international age now, and yet you rarely hear England discussed on Cousin Brucey's show, unless it has to do with a, a rock group. That's about it. You know. You rarely hear Bulgaria discussed on uh, Imus's show, for example. 
But Shepard Show is a true international phenomenon, and it deals with mankind wherever he may exist. And so tonight, we take this occasion to salute a magnificent Englishman. the British Broadcasting Corporation salutes an Englishman and the soul of Richard the Lionhearted. We shall fight them from the hedgerows. We shall fight them with blood, sweat, and tears. This is Sir H.G. Gravage with tonight's Created Englishman. Brought to you by the British Broadcasting Corporation's third program service. Would you please reset my theme for use at the end of tonight's syllabus, please? Thank you. Tonight, we would like to take this occasion on the British Broadcasting Corporation to salute the creativity of the English cuisine, which has been subjected to some ill-founded japeries around the world from time to time. English cooking has been many times libeled by those who do not realize that the Englishman in his home is in his castle and he creates his own cuisine. And so tonight, I stop and talk and just listen. Tonight, we would like to salute an Englishman. Dinner for the Samuels family in Lancaster, England, often included spinach, they call it, from their own backyard vegetable plot. And the family enjoyed it night after night, week after week, and year after year. The leaves made a delicious meal, according to Cecil Samuels, the father of five little Samuels. And then police identified his spinach as marijuana and charged him with unknowingly and knowingly and lawfully conducting a systematic cultivation of this plant. Now, tonight we would like to salute. Mr. Samuels, the first man to introduce marijuana as a family soup. Every night, with a little touch of onion, a little salt, a little pepper, possibly even a little butter, the five Samuels enjoyed their magnificent marijuana soup every night. And for those who have said that English cuisine is dull and lacks imagination, the back of my hand to you. In French cuisine is found marijuana soup. The famed Howard Johnson chain of America does not serve marijuana soup. No, it remained for one stout-hearted, creative, brave Englishman to break forth and break down the barriers of the English cuisine. Tonight, the British Broadcasting Corporation salutes Cecil Samuels, wherever you might be. May your soup continue to fly. And why do they put that stuff on my show? Why can't they put this BBC salute jazz on? Barry Barber's show. What's his name? Barry, Barry Farber. Why can't they put it on his show? God's sakes. That's terrible. Well, uh, just thought you ought to know, before we go any further, friends, we have a little general tire spotty here. For those of you out there that are 
fight in winter, and it's a losing battle because it's going to come no matter what you do. If you need a pair of dependable winter tires, even if you don't have a car and you'd like to just have a pair of winter tires sit around the house, they're beautiful to look at. You ever see those beautiful winter cleat tires? They've got those big knobby cleats on them. They make a great coffee table. What a fantastic conversation piece, too. Just lay one of those big winter cleats right in the middle of your Danish rug and let people talk about it. Smell it. It's rich and ripe. And they're beautiful. Winter cleat tires. And don't forget, you go in snow or general pays the toe. In uh, Brooklyn, see Steve at the Gannon Tire Company, 6502 Bay Parkway. Well, let's see. Time for the following uh, political announcement was paid for by the committee for Senator Case. Hello, I'm Senator Cliff Case. To work for the people of New Jersey in the United States Senate has been a rare opportunity. I'm the only senator from New Jersey on the two most important Senate committees, Foreign Affairs and Appropriations. I've tried always to work in the best interest of all of our people of New Jersey and the nation. I hope that you'll vote for me, Senator Case, on Tuesday. I believe I've earned your trust. The preceding political announcement was paid for by the committee for Senator Case. Many people have written me and complained that my Mandarin Chinese accent leaves much to be desired. Well, that is quite true. Uh, I, I learned my Mandarin Chinese from a laundryman I knew in Hessville, Indiana. And uh, he had reason enough to be sore at the Mandarins. And so, uh, <laughs> so but nevertheless, I, I, I do carry it off well enough to be able to get what I want when I go down to the House of Chan. For example, when I walk in, which is uh, an uh, admonition to the waiter that I want gung pao immediately. I want it red hot. And he'd better get his tail burning because I'm going to start moving fast if he don't. That's what that literally translates into. And if you've never tried gung pao, it's a fantastic chicken dish which is served down at the House of Chan. It's at 52nd and 7th. And uh, they're open every day of the week until midnight. And if you go in before the theater, uh, tell them that you wish to make a, uh, you wish to make a curtain tonight. You're playing Hamlet at the Lunt Fontaine. And they'll be sure to give you a little extra something in the gung pao. It'll make your Hamlet performance sing. Veritable excitement. Uh, by the way, there's an old slogan in Chinese which, which goes this way. Which translated means, if gung pao chicken don't make your nose sweat, that ain't gung pao chicken. So I would suggest you try it at the House of Chan, 52nd Street and 7th Avenue. Speaking of hands across the sea, do you have that little Lufthansa quiddy, please? We're the fourth grade from you know, the Truly International Show. And we want to see Chinese the great of Lufthansa German Airlines. Is he real? English uh, marijuana soup. Only it's today, all the Lufthansa Red Baron is inspecting the Lufthansa kitchens in New York. In first class, the Red Baron has a menu <laughs> just like you get in a fancy restaurant. And you can pick whatever you wish from the menu. I know. I have flown with the Red Baron. My father says Lufthansa is a German this? airline. And the Red Baron is on every plane to make sure everything goes just right. Not really. On every Lufthansa flight, there are nice stewardesses to serve you your food and drinks and help you to be comfortable. And also, we have man stewards, too. They all can tell you places to see and things to do when you get to Germany. After all, nobody would know Germany better than us. That's why so many people fly to Germany on Lufthansa. Because the Red Baron tells them to. No, because they like Lufthansa. I ought to know. Oh, you're Mrs. Red Baron? Uh, why don't you just say we're good friends? I'll, I'll, I'll award a brass figligee with a bronze oak leaf palm for anybody out there. Because we all know the term. Uh, most uh, I imagine most kids think Red Baron was created by Snoopy. But uh, 
actually the Vasa Red Band. And uh, I'll, I'll award a brass fig leggy with bronze oak leaf palm to anybody out there who can tell me what his first name was. I'm very. He was a very famous uh, a pilot. What was his first name? It was not Red. Sorry. <laughs> and in fact, during during the war, when he was actually in operation, they did not call him the Red Baron. He was not called that. He was called the Red Battle Knight. That's what he was really called. I say the Rota uh, Flieg. Schlachter. <laughs> no, no, seriously, he was not called the Red Baron uh, during, except very, very rarely. But uh, he was he was referred to as the Red Knight of Germany. He was referred to as the Red Battle Knight. Why was he called Red? Do any of you know why he was called the Red Baron? Well, that is also arguable. Yes, he did have a red airplane. But why did he why did he paint his plane red? You know this. <laughs> Not because he thought it was theatrical, which is what probably what you would believe, but he painted it red so that he could be identified by his squadron, in his squadron, as the flight leader. So without any question, they could identify which plane among the planes in his squadron was the leader of the squadron so that they could form their various formations upon him. <laughs> and uh, incidentally, all the other pilots in his squadron then painted parts of the aircraft red so they could identify them always as members of their squadron when you saw a plane with a red nose or a red tail or a red uh, underbelly to the plane or something. But uh, what was his first name? Come on. He had a first name, you know. And the, even Snoopy does not know that. <laughs> uh, he had a brother, by the way, who was almost as famous as he was. He was also a very famous pilot. And he, he, he was a, uh, by the, the end of the war, he'd shot down something like, oh, almost double the American ace. He shot down something like 45. And uh, I'll give you a clue. His brother's name was Lothar. That great name for an ace, isn't it? Lothar. Lothar von Richthofen. Baron Lothar von Richthofen, no less. So what was, what was uh, his brother's name, his older brother, who was the famous baron? By the way, when he was killed, he was only 25. In case you're curious about that. So he wasn't that old. And a very fine pilot. But, uh, you know, we don't want to get into that. This is uh, this is ridiculous, you know. It's, uh, this is all part of the hands-across-the-sea policy that we have here. We're uh, beginning to expand our horizons. And, uh, you know, what with the chicken down at the House of Chan. You know, speaking of chicken, we'd like to, again, you have my salute music up there. Please hold it there a moment. Uh, I have a, a major salute I'd like to make here. It's uh, really impressed me. Of course, this is personal. You don't mind if tonight... I do a personal show that is involved with a personal problem, personal hang-up, right? You don't mind? Uh, all right, please. I would like to salute. Uh, this is uh, in the world of sports. Another great uh, sporting event has just concluded. And uh, those of you who get all hung up on professional basketball or hockey and all that stuff, this is a sporting event I would like to see. Can you imagine this sporting event on the wide, wide world of sports brought to you by Rune Arledge with uh, Jim McKay standing there with a microphone, you know, with that... That look on his face, he says, and now we take you to Spring Hill, Florida. Yep, the feathers flew in Spring Hill, Florida. They certainly did. The, the feathers flew, a new world record was set, where a four-woman team of chicken pluckers bested the world record in their specialty by plucking a dozen 
birds in four minutes and two and five-tenths seconds. Fantastic new record. That's a dozen birds in four minutes, 25.5 seconds. The secret, said Spring Hill team captain Sophia Hutchinson, is stripping chickens rather than pulling the feathers out by the roots. Hernando County's chickens were undressed more than two minutes quicker than ever before. The previous world record time listed in the Guinness World Book of Records was six minutes and 31 seconds flat. And now a new record stands in the record book, proud and clear. We'd like to salute them ladies down there in Spring Hill, Georgia, Florida, who really plucked them chickens good. Now, I just tell you this as a, as a chicken plucker. I, I really seriously recognize this fantastic achievement. And uh, for those of you who know anything about chickens, you know that plucking chickens, a dozen chickens in four minutes is a hell of a lot of chickens to be plucked. Yes, indeed. They pluck them just as, a, just as bald as a billiard ball. You know, speaking of uh, chicken pluckers, this is WOR New York. They pluck you clean as a whistle, man. If you just stand too close to that loudspeaker, we'll just pluck the feathers right off your breast, baby. So just stand back now. <laughs> and do you ever think of yourself as a chicken that's carefully being plucked by the world? It's plucking away there, see? And uh, you, you don't have any feathers left, but they're still plucking. They're going to pluck every last one. Do you have a goodie in there? Let's pluck another one off of them. Let's hit them again. Let's hit them again. Come on. Hit this them is Tom Laffey. I am one of the five Irish-Americans who are in jail for three months in Texas without charge or trial. While I was in Fort Worth jail, my Congressman Lester Wolf was speaking out in Congress for my constitutional right to be released on bail. Lester Wolf traveled 1,400 miles to visit me and see how I was being treated. Today I am at home in New York with my wife and three children because my Congressman cared. This is Senator Birch Bayh. Lester Wolf was a leader in the drive for the passage of the 18-year-old vote amendment, and he was a tireless assistant in our efforts to secure the adoption of the Women's Equal Rights Amendment. He's also worked tirelessly to cut the food prices by lowering the agricultural subsidies that are rewarding rich corporate farmers for not producing. If you live in Queens or Nassau, keep your independent voice in Congress by re-electing Lester Wolf to a fifth term, paid for by Friends of Wolf Team. Yeah, the, the time was paid for. Political announcement by the friends of the Wolf Team. That's not the same as the Wolf Pack. That's the Wolf Team. I'm sorry, I just couldn't help that one. And uh, we have one more little uh, reminder here, General Tire. Don't forget that if, uh, well, you go in snow or General pays the toll, remember what they said. What for them water cleat tires? In Newark, ask for Ben Robinson at General Tire Service, 857 Freeling Heisen Avenue. Bump -bump -bump. That was kind of nice, wasn't it? Quickie. You know, uh, speaking of, uh, of uh, chickens, though, uh, those chicken pluckers, uh, the following uh, little story is one that I have told on several occasions. I'm going to warn you, it's a story that has certain sickening overtones. And I'm about to tell it again, because I received a letter from a guy from Camp Gordon, Georgia. You know Camp Gordon, Georgia? That's a camp, right? You better take my word for it. It's a camp. And uh, he wrote, uh, it's not Camp E, it's a camp. He wrote, uh, he wrote to me. He's a, he's a, uh, one of the listener types saying, he says, you know, Shepard, he says, I couldn't believe it. He says, I got down here, Camp Georgia, Camp Gordon, Georgia. And he writes on the, you know, this camp stationary cross rifles and little birds and flags all over it, you know. And uh, he says, uh, he says, I wasn't in this camp 10 days. 
He says, when the very thing, he says, when I'm sitting back in, in Plainfield listening to you one night, I'm laughing my guts out, he says, at the story. He says, what do you think happened? He says, I get in the Army. He says, I figured it's just one of those things you made up, you know. He said, get in the Army. He said, not in the Army. Ten days when the exact thing happened to me that happened to you. He said, there is a lesson in that somewhere for us. Well, <laughs> all right. He says, would you please, would you please repeat that story? He said, because, he says, I want friends of mine throughout the New York area, Jersey area, to know exactly what happened to me. He says, because it happened to you too. Well, I'm going to tell you. This is an army story. Now, the reason I tell an army story is not because Shepard is a militaristic nut. No way. It's, in fact, the opposite. <laughs> militaristic nuts never have any bad things happen to them in the army. It's the other kind to do. So, uh, nevertheless... Uh, I have also come to the conclusion that in, in, in the moments of your greatest triumph, or at least what seems to be the greatest triumph, are the seeds of your greatest defeat. Now, this, this, is, this has happened so many times in, the, in guys' lives that, uh, that it doesn't even bear repeating. Like a friend of mine, for example, the day that he received a national award as doing the outstanding television show of that year was also the afternoon he got fired. Now, the two are connected. <laughs> They're definitely connected. In fact, I think one of the reasons why we constantly get shot down in our moments of triumph is because people around us are really jealous of that victory. And if they can do anything to explode you, they'll do it. At that moment. Not before. It's that moment. You got it? It's Iago whispering in the ear of Otello. He got the Academy Award, huh? Well, you know how he got it, huh? Yes, sir. A little hanky-panky there in the casting department, right? Guess who the hanky-panky was with? I'm not going to say anything about it, Otello. Believe me. I'm not going to even mention names. But let's put it this way. Somebody quite close to you. <laughs> Just thought you ought to know, and I'm telling you as a friend. Just as a friend. Nothing more. I have no axe to grind. I do not expect to get an Academy Award myself, or a job even. I'm just telling you, I hate to see this kind of injustice happen. Because I'm basically a fair man. And I want to see justice triumph. We're approaching Christmas, right? Yeah. Won't be long. Already the long knives are being sharpened in many a company. Because any guy knows who works in big organizations. He knows that the day that Christmas approaches is the day that the axe is brought out. That's right. And so it is with a great heavy heart that I report to you that in one of my moments, one of my rare moments of, of euphoria, I discovered the ashen truth of reality. I'm in the Army, see? Got it? Well, now, when you're in the Army, there's a lot of things that have to be explained about. There's, once you're in the Army, and have been in the Army, you know a lot of things about things that you can't relate to other people. You know, I've had, I've had girls, you know, friends of mine, women type, who say that, you know, there's no way that a male can ever understand what it's like to be pregnant. Now, I can see that's undoubtedly true. That's quite true. 
And I can also say that there's no way for me to describe to you really how it feels to be in any of the armed forces unless you've been there. Then I wouldn't have to explain it anyway. No way, because it is a subtle thing. Extremely subtle. And that's why literature pertaining to the great wars of history is timeless. Because it remains constant. A yard bird in the 7th Pennsylvania Rifles, slogging along behind uh, General J.G.L. Bullerfuller. He, he, he's in the Army exactly the same as some guy slogging along uh, with, <laughs> with his, with his, uh, with his uh, khaki shirt hanging down, dripping with sweat, slogging along behind some captain outside of Saigon. Same scene. And death, by the way, is his final. Believe me, a guy getting getting a getting a mini ball, getting a, getting a slug between the eyes at the Battle of Gettysburg is just as dead as a guy who got it anywhere else, and it's just as final. And it was no more fun for him than anywhere else. We tend to believe this, you know. We tend to think, oh well, the old wars were kind of groovy. It's only today's wars that are rotten. <laughs> this is a continuing myth of man, but nevertheless. A war is a war is a war, is a rose is a rose is a rose, pigeons on the grass, alas. Uh, Shepard has just come up with a Shepard quotation. That's right. His quotation is this. Just as pigs remain pigs, and fish remain fish, wars remain wars. There's very little difference. A man who is eaten by a shark is dead. And he's no more dead than if the shark was blue, green, or yellow. <laughs> okay. And so Shepard is sitting there, you know. He's been in the Army now about a year and a half, two years, long enough to know the score. And uh, it's a very subtle score. He's long enough to. He's been in the army long enough to know that uh, that uh, there's nothing. There's really basically nothing you can really count on in a vast organization like this. But you can count on. Well, you can count on certain things. But the things you can count on are not things you want. <laughs> so that means you know you just go along. And and it's interesting. I, I tell you, anybody who's ever been in the army is it must concede. In the and when I say army, I mean any of the armed forces. Any. They're all uh, not. They're, they're different in detail, but the same in total concept. You're in. That's the total concept. You ain't out, you're in. Big difference. Well, okay, now what does that mean? Well, when you're in, you can't get out. It's, it's kind of like a conundrum. It's like a Chinese box puzzle. The, no matter what you're doing in civilian life, I mean... You're even if you're in eighth grade, there is the secret knowledge that you could quit. Now it may be hard, but you could do it. You could, <laughs> you could pull it off. But I have very rarely seen a guy pull it off in the army. You know, go down to the orderly room and say, "Hey, I've had this. You know, I, I want to cut it out. I, I, just, I, I quit. That's it. I simply quit. I'm giving you my two weeks' notice." <laughs> it's a, you're doing what? <laughs> okay, 
<laughs> so you, you, in, in, one of the great things about being in a situation like that is that you learn to, to, to celebrate very small victories. You, you, you learn to appreciate tiny things, right? And so a guy sitting on his footlocker in the army, uh, there's various types, you see, of, of men. There, there's the kind of guy, for example, who sleeps. In every army outfit or every navy outfit, every outfit I've ever seen, Air Force, you name it, there's always one guy in the barracks who figures that if he continues to sleep for three years, he will not remember any of it. And he does. He sleeps. We had a guy in every barracks I was ever Always, a, You see this, this bunked out at the end, this huddled figure sleeping away. Slept all through it. Then there is the polisher. Some guys just sit at the on the footlocker and polish their shoes grimly, endlessly. Belt buckle, shoes. By the way, the belt buckle type is another type, so he's another guy. There's also the guy that's got his belt continually down in the latrine, washing it and bleaching it. You know, this is the way he spends his life. Then there's the letter writer. There are guys who seem to be writing an eternal letter. They're always bent over, writing endlessly, endlessly, endlessly. These are sort of gray-type guys. You wonder who the hell it is that's interested in hearing from them, you know? But they write endlessly. Well, I was another type entirely. I was a mover. I mean, I, a mover is always down trying to get a pass. <laughs> he's always trying to get a pass. And he's always trying to get out and do, you know, somehow keep moving, keep moving, get, get transferred. My, my trick was to move fast. Move in the night and apply for a transfer by morning. And be on your way. So you keep moving. If you keep moving, keep a moving target, they'll never get you. Well, one afternoon, our entire company, Company K, just without any warning at all, was shipped just like that. Bam. We came back from the rifle range or something. It was noon. It was a bulletin board posted on the board. It says all men will assemble at 1300 with full field pack. Equipment packed, ready to move out by 1350. Well, we, you know, we assume that this is just one of these little maneuver type things. Well, 1350 arrived. We're all standing around with 100 pounds of junk on our back. I had my tent pegs, everything ready to go. You know, <laughs> trucks pulled up, <laughs> and 20 minutes later, we are rolling through the countryside in a train, and everybody's scared. This is serious. We rolled on and on and on through the night. We rolled on and on and on and on through half of the next day. The train pulled into a siding and stayed there for it seemed like ten hours. Then we rolled on again, always north, always north. And then at 2 a.m. in the morning, we pulled into the siding of another, another train station. The doors were slammed open and we were marched out into five below zero temperatures. The wind screaming out of the north. And Company K knew this was no joke. And they moved us into more trucks, carried us through the night to a place called the Motor Pool in a dark, dreary, frozen camp. We were assigned to tents which had not been slept in for two and a half years. And the tent I was in, by the way, had a great rip over the top of it. It was a six-man tent, a pyramidal tent, and snow was drifting in down through the top of the tent. We hadn't seen snow for two years. We'd been down in the, in the, in the tropical swamps, and all of a sudden snow. And here we are lying on our bunks, 
and I piled everything I could pile on top of me to keep warm. I even Can you imagine trying to keep warm by putting wooden tent pegs on your knees? I mean, serious. We put everything. <laughs> we had everything. My guys were probably, I had I had my gas mask on. You imagine sleeping in your gas mask. You figure keep your face warm, you know. And the, everybody was laying there saying, this wind is blowing past us colder. Wow, we, well, at 4.30 in the morning, boom, a gun goes off. And marches are playing. And the PA system all over this camp, they wake you up with a fantastic shot in the head. And the guys are struggling up in the dark. And I can hear them lining up in the company street out in front. I line up in darkness. We don't know where we're going, what we're doing. We don't know anything about what's going to happen. And a strange, a strange sergeant is out in front of us. Never saw this guy before. He's got a clipboard. He starts reading the roll. And you know, a roll is an important thing in the morning. The army, see. Oh, man, this is it. And he's, he's reading this roll, see. And he called his name. He mispronounced every name. If you imagine a guy that could even mispronounce Smith. Say, Smythe, A.G., 1709894-6. You'd hear a muffled thing in the back. I said, what the hell, Smythe, Smythe? Smythe, A.G., 1709894-6. The guy finally gets it. He's talking about him. You hear, yo. Well, see, this is a, you, you answer, you never answer here in the Army. Once you answer here in the Army, you're making a definite statement. You're here. And that's saying you're tacitly approving of what's going on. Here. Shepard is here. So you don't say that. Everybody had his own technique of answering the role. Some guys, you know, just went, yeah. Other guys went, yeah. See, a little subtle difference. The most common type was, yo. Smythe, AG, 1609946, yo. And each guy had his own his own pitch. Yo, yo, ho, ye, ho. You hear him answer, yeah, ye, ho, ha, ho, ye, ho, 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 ye. And then finally he's at the end of the roll. All right, he says, uh, let's see, we got following message on the bulletin board. All you men's are going to wear today your field jacket. You're going to wear today Class D uniform with leggings. You'll wear your gas mask. You'll be ready for details. At 0730, immediately following breakfast chow. The detail list will be posted on the bulletin board. And immediately following noon chow, 1350. We will have a reclassification program. All you guys that think you've been trained in the Army the last two years, we are reclassifying you. How many radar men do we have here in this group? You will be reclassified down at the wire school. How many long-distance telephone operators we got in this group? You will be reclassified at the wire school. Reclassification examination will begin at probably at 15.30. Any questions? Any questions? Just in that one comment, he has just said, your entire life is ruined. I mean, I don't care what you do for a living, friend. What if it's taking you nine years to learn to be a doctor? What if tomorrow morning they line you up out in front of the hospital, a guy got up and says, all you men that are doctors here will be reclassified at 1 o'clock this afternoon. You will be assigned to truck driver school. My God. There wasn't a guy in that company that, that, that didn't have less than nine years of schooling in radar, you name it. It was an elite group. And just with one fell swoop, one swell foop, reduced to basic yard birds. Almost said it. Well, we drifted back into the tents. I remember sitting on a tent. I says, what the hell now? 
Well, you know, I'll tell you about man. Man is, is great in one respect. His mind instantly, in spite of regrets, adjusts to a current adversity. That's great. <laughs> if we didn't, we wouldn't have existed this long. Within five minutes, none of us were even thinking of ourselves as radar men anymore. We was basic yard birds, and now the thing to do is to hit and land on your feet and work out another good deal. If they're going to reclassify me, I'm going to work another deal. <laughs> so right away they're planning, see, they're plotting. Guys, you know, they're going to send, I'll tell you what, uh, you ever hear about that low-speed uh, code school? I'll tell you that. Don't let them send you to that. I mean, if they give you a code, if they give you a code test, you don't know how to take it, right? And uh, listen, oh my God, don't tell them you can type. Don't tell them you can type. Well, ten minutes later, we are standing out, <laughs> we are standing out in the cold, the wind is blowing, and the, the ultimate humiliation was 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 visited upon us. Now here, all of us have been, you know, technicians for for two years, and we've been working with very highly skilled equipment. I mean, like two million dollars worth of radar. Now we're standing. The wind is blowing, and another guy steps out in front of us. My name is Simonson. I'm Corporal Simonson. I'm your duty corporal. I will from now on assign you to your duties here in your temporary post here at MP1. Motor pool one. I want you guys from this point on down to the left. You guys in five minutes will report. Corporal Kluberman will take you down to the consolidated mess hall. You men's are on now KP. At the consolidated mess, you will be down there assigned to the mess sergeant until further notice. Guess who is in the middle of that crowd? I don't want to tell you, you know. So five minutes later, me and Gasser are marching on down there. They would just march. You don't have any... They watch you. you there's no way you're going to run and hide under the tent or anything. They just watch you, see. So we walk down in, 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 in what they call broken cadence. means you walk quiet. No talk. You don't have to walk in, 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 in time, but no talk. So we drift on down. And the corporal walking out in front of us. He turns to us and he says, Hey, so you guys... How many of you guys ever worked in a, in a consolidated mess before? Not one. Nobody wants to admit he's done anything. Because if you say, yeah, yeah, you, next thing you know, you know you're, on, you're on the China Clipper. Who knows, you know? So uh, he says, how many of you guys worked in a consolidated mess before? Not one. Now, consolidated mess, I'm going to give you a tip. It's not the same as an ordinary mess hall. No way. A consolidated mess is like the big horn and hard art in the sky. It goes 24 hours a day. It serves like 46 divisions. <laughs> I mean, everybody in the place comes in there to eat, and they are eating 24 hours a day. Now, what does that mean? That means that 24 hours a day, there are guys scouring pans. 24 hours a day, there are guys dragging dregs out of oatmeal pots. 24 hours a day, there are guys doing all that humiliating stuff that goes to with preparing food... <laughs> cleaning trays. Oh, if I ever look at another... You know, even to this day, when I go to a restaurant and I see somebody drop a cigarette in a cup of, you know, half lukewarm coffee, when he's, you know, use, use a coffee cup, in other words, for, as an ashtray, I want to get up and take it and dump it right on his head. Because there's nothing that makes you... Nothing turns your stomach more than get the... You're back there washing dishes and you get 15 cups that's got cigarette butts, cigar butts, chewing tobacco, you name it, in the cup. Oh, that's really rotten. <laughs> so anyway, 
I'm now down at the consolidated mess. And the mess sergeant comes out and he looks over the newest bunch of KPs. So, all right, he says, I want you guys here from this point on to the left. He says, I want you to go back to the kitchen. He says, you two guys, I want you guys as outside men. Now, outside men is a real great deal. You just sort of stand around outside and mess around. That's an army tradition. There's an outside man. He just messes around outside the mess hall. That's all. You know, when guys come up, he just talks about, yeah, we got corned beef today. Yeah, SOS. Yeah, that's all. He just stands around. He takes me and Gasser, points right at us, and he says, you two guys. Now, listen, this is the point of the story now. He says, you two guys. He's the tall one there. What's your name? Gasser says, Gasser. He's the other guy. What's your name? I said, Shepard. He says, you two guys can go back to your tent. He says, you guys are dismissed. You report back here to the mess hall at exactly 12 noon. Fantastic. Dismissed. We got nothing to do till noon. Don't worry, Jerry. We got nothing to do till noon. Nothing to do till noon in the Army. That's incredible. I go back and I lay in that sack, man. I just knock it out. I mean, oh, what a victory. This is un you know, just totally unexpected. The unexpected victory is the one that counts. At noon, we drift back. And he says, ah, there you go. He says, you two guys, uh, he says, you come back, huh? I said, yeah. He says, all right, go with the corporal. And the corporal takes us back into the kitchen. All of us, of our buddies are hanging around. Goldberg is the outside man. He's messing around. They're looking at us. Boy, you guys sure got a deal. They take us back into the kitchen. The corporal says, all right, you guys. It's just why we saved you. We've got one job for you guys. He opens the door to the storeroom. Couldn't believe my eyes. The floor of the storeroom, which was about 15 feet square, is covered with newspapers. And covering the newspapers to at least a five foot depth is a gigantic pile of unplucked, uncleaned, totally complete, dead, very dead chickens. He says, You guys are going to clean them chickens. Then began one of the most educational days of my life. Me and Gasser cleaned 400 chickens. You have no idea what's in chickens, friends. When you clean 400, you learn a lot of anatomy. And most of it you don't want to learn. 400 chickens. Just give me a little of that music there to tick it off. And so even to this day, even now... At this minute, when I think of chickens, when I walk past the frozen food counter, I don't look at those lovely Frank Perdue, beautifully cleaned and wrapped in cellophane breasts. I see something else. You just don't go back. Thank you. Hold it. Hold it, Ed. Hold it. And so my friend, don't worry, Jerry. So my friend at Camp Gordon is having the same problem. And tonight, we've got a problem, too. We've got a lot of commercials. Let's see. First thing I'm going to do is, how about Levy? Hit him. I'm Annette Flato Levy, Republican candidate for Congress in the 20th Congressional District. A primary issue in this campaign is Bella Abzug herself. Bella's bellicose and vituperative style and her frequent resort to violent language has made her one of the least effective members of Congress. Her supporters argue that she has a voice loud enough to be heard. Unfortunately, her raucous behavior and shrill tone has made her more of a liability than an asset 
for the causes she espouses. Her unprincipled behavior is perhaps best typified by her choice to run against the late Congressman William F. Ryan in the June primary, where she was soundly defeated. Bella's willingness to abandon Israel to further her isolationist policies and her firm opposition to every important program to fight crime will result in her rejection once again on November 7th. I believe that I can continue the reason and responsible leadership the voters in the 20th Congressional District have had by beating Bella badly at the polls. And that was uh, presented by the WOR Public Affairs Department. Uh, by the way, speaking of public affairs, we're going to have elections here on WOR, so they start at 8 p.m. Tuesday night. You listen to them. And don't forget those general tires. If you're looking for winter cleat tires, friends, in the Bronx, see Murray Lester at Bronx General Tire, seven or 579 Grand Concourse. And uh, let's see, we have another goodie here. Yeah, here it is. Gramercy Park closed at 64 West 23rd Street in New York says... Uh, come on down and you'll save some money on your suits. It's primarily what they say. And uh, they're open to 7 p.m. every day, Saturday to 6, and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 4. That's 64 West 23rd Street, third floor. And uh, do we have another goodie? Hit the button, please. Escape to the sun. An epic drama of intrigue and determination as eight different people with one common goal set off an incredible all-or-nothing scheme to realize their dreams of freedom. They take every chance. They risk every danger. They play the deadly game of international intrigue to escape to the sun. A Cinevision release rated PG parental guidance suggested. Escape to the Sun continues performances now at the Criterion and Translux 85th Street Theaters. Uh, let's see. Well, I think that's about it. One more note here. We got the TV guide here. I don't know what TV guide is, but I'm not going to play it for you tonight because I don't have time for it. But, uh, well, outside of that, uh, I can only say to you, friends, when you look at the chicken, you're looking at a complicated instrument. This is a very complex machine, the chicken. He's full of stuff you wouldn't believe he's full of. He, I mean, you know. <laughs> By the way, the Army was very adept at using a lot of the stuff the chickens produce. But uh, they didn't leave anything to chance. Nothing was lost. Nothing. So each man must make his own peace as best he can. He must weave his own tapestry of existence. He must create his own quilt of protection against the howling winds of, uh, of, uh, what the hell is it? It's, uh, it's uh, something out there. Slip of mind. I mean, you know, doom, disaster, trepidation, fear, turtles with four-letter words written on their backs, all those terrible things that your level will run into at any given time. Like, uh, by the way, one day I went into a Chinese restaurant. It was not the House of Chan, although I will say this. The House of Chan, the other day, I'm very serious. I go into this restaurant, you know, and I'm sitting down there, and everything was great. The food was fine. And afterwards, they bring me these Chinese fortune cookies. What a fantastic shot in the head. I open the fortune cookie, and all it says is, life is hard. <laughs> what a thing to get. Now, I have to have a fortune cookie tell me that. What do you mean? I once I've got a fortune cookie, I open it up, and it says, look out, there's somebody behind you. He's after you. And uh, there was. I looked around. There was a little guy there. He's giving you a bad look. So you never know, you know. I, I don't put anything down. I mean, I don't put anything down. I, I, have you ever had the feeling that at the age of five, before you knew what was good for you, somebody put the horns on you? You've never been able to get out of it? Are you a jinx? That's your problem. Yeah, this is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith on the news. News and detail on the hour from the WOR newsroom. 
Tonight, in a paid political address, President Nixon explained why he felt next Tuesday's election should not be used as a lever to gain a fast Vietnam War settlement. Said Mr. Nixon, We are not going to allow an election deadline or any other kind of deadline to force us into an agreement which would be only a temporary truce and not a lasting peace. We are going to sign the agreement when the agreement is right, not one day before. And when the agreement is right, we are going to sign without one day's delay. The president also said of domestic programs that if the size of the federal government continued to increase as it had in the past 40 years, the result would be catastrophic. And Mr. Nixon claimed that if the spending programs proposed by Democratic presidential candidate George McGovern were made law, they would require a 50% federal tax increase. Campaigning in Jackson, Michigan, Senator McGovern said of the president's stand on the Vietnam tentative settlement, Judging from what the president uh, said tonight, it appears that their uh, efforts at a negotiated settlement are falling apart. Apparently, General Tu in Saigon doesn't like the shape of the uh, proposed settlement. There's some indication that maybe uh, Mr. Nixon is having second thoughts about it. But in any event, as one who has opposed this war now for more than nine years, I want you to understand that uh, when you make your judgment on Tuesday about how you're going to vote, that I'm fully committed to a 90-day orderly withdrawal of all American troops and prisoners of war if I'm elected president of the United States. No longer secret are the campaign contributions to President Nixon's election effort. Tonight, the committee to re-elect the president disclosed a list of contributors who gave almost $5 million to the Republican Party before the April 1st campaigning reporting law became